y'all, this is John and Mike back for another episode of the Nothing Finer podcast. We are once again live on Millions. Tonight we are joined with uh, Candler Cook to um, to talk about some cocktail party, upcoming playoff poll, and then a little bit about some of the games that happened this past weekend. But before we get into all of that, how was y'all's weekend and what are you drinking? My weekend was great. Um, obviously, there was no dog to game to watch, but plenty of entertaining football yesterday. Um, the Falcons, as usual, had everyone's uh, just, you know, heart uh, wrenched around every single play of will they mess up or won't they mess up. And uh, I've, got, I've got a good old uh, mango White Claw to drink. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> I, uh, weekend was good. We celebrated my wife's uh, birthday a little bit early because her, her birthday is this work week this coming week. So we're going to. You know, be busy with that, but um, got after it a little bit Friday and Saturday night. So just today, uh, just have some power ready to try to replenish. Uh, how about you? I also haven't been feeling all that great um, this weekend for whatever reason. So I just got a caffeine-free diet coke. I'm been drinking Here water all day, and I got this, and then hopefully I'll go to sleep and not feel like I got hit in the head by a baseball bat. All right, so, Candler, you specifically asked to talk about the cocktail party, and I know this is a rivalry that means a lot to you. You make the trip every year. What is it that makes this rivalry so so special to you? You know, to me, it's a border war. It's one of the last few epic neutral site games. There have been a few that have been added in recent years. Like, I know Texas A&M and Arkansas started playing in Jerry's World, but to me, this is this and Texas and Oklahoma are the two like epic rivalry games that always take place in a neutral field down to the last fan. It is 50-50. So you see half the stadium just erupting, half the stadium in silence every single play. That's pretty rare. And this year, maybe the next to last one to see it as it is. So it means a lot. I mean, obviously, like you guys as a Georgia fan, I grew up and we lost to Florida almost every year. So I, I hate these guys' guts, and it, it means a lot every time we beat them, and uh, it'll sure mean a lot this upcoming Saturday. Did they say uh, quite – so you mentioned it before, and I know uh, Jacksonville is doing the whole renovation and making an indoor stadium and all that. So when – so is next year the last year, as far as we know, that it's going to be in Jacksonville while they're remodeling or renovating the uh, area? Yeah, the last year that it's guaranteed – um after that it very well could stay in jacksonville the odds may even be strong that it does but every time that kirby points out how much of a disadvantage we're at where we can't host recruits at home the city of jacksonville ponies up another million dollars for both schools so it may not be the worst thing to to try to keep mentioning that we should take it out of jacksonville but in the meantime it, it very well could go either way i could see that um and i know there will be like you said two years where no matter what it cannot be in jacksonville because the stadium renovations Hopefully they uh, don't demolish the pool cabanas, but you never know. And that's two years if everything goes to plan. It's right. That is right. That's right. It could construction be construction is more often than not. It does not go as planned. Yeah. It'll be interesting. I, even like where the Jags are going to play, because I think they said like the the next biggest stadium closest to Jacksonville only holds like what fifteen thousand people. Obviously, that's not an option for uh for this game. Well. For this game, no, but for the Jaguars, um, they give away a couple thousand tickets on vet ticks every week to every home game. Like, I don't think yeah. 15,000 would be a problem to fill that stadium and maybe have some empty seats with the Jags. 
Yeah, you never know. That, that'll be very interesting, but it, it's just quite the scene. I mean, Georgia fans travel, and all the way back to, I mean, the you know, 60s, 70s, like you hear the Larry Munson radio calls where it's just an epic location. Georgia fans go down there. They turn into a three- or four-day event um, to the point where professors stopped even teaching classes the Thursday and Friday before then, and they had to call it fall break because nobody would even show up. I mean, that that's a different kind of rivalry. It was so needed, too. I was so happy when they started doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, much needed. Yeah. So this game, I feel like, honestly, a lot of Florida fans are, or a lot of Georgia fans are not necessarily respecting just how good this Florida team can be at times. What What are kind of your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's an interesting one. So I, you're exactly right. This is a very bipolar Florida team. I think that their um, their ceiling is somewhat high. Their floor is very low. I was looking through their schedule today. I wouldn't be stunned if uh, Florida goes on to go 6-6 six and six and then lose the bowl game and have a losing record. I wouldn't be stunned if they do a good bit better than that. Um, you never know. To me, like the way that they beat Tennessee was very impressive. How they looked against Kentucky – they didn't even look like a power five team. Um, I'm really, really not sure. And I feel like even at their best, Georgia should be able to take care of them. Um, but so far, even though Georgia's been up and down, they've been far, far more consistent than Florida has. So we'll see what kind of team Florida brings out there. Probably their best shot, but you never know. For the record, if anyone's wondering, so obviously Florida's going to play Georgia in uh, in Jacksonville. They played home against Arkansas the following week at, at LSU, at Missouri, and then finish up at home against Florida State. So they have a hell of a schedule the last five games. They really do. Oh. Uh oh. Candler, we lost your video if you're still there. All right. Yes, I'm here. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, no, no. It would not surprise me. Like, honestly, I think the two outcomes for this Florida team are really seven and six, or, I mean, I don't even think eight and four. Nine and three would be that out of the question if they play at their best every week. And I will say one thing that concerns me this week is it'll be the first game Georgia has played without Brock Bowers since 2020. 2020. Yeah. That's right. So, he was big in this game last year, too. Yeah. The tipped ball. I don't know if anyone will forget that. Oh, I was, I was in that end zone uh, when he scored that. That was awesome. Yeah. So, so who do you think Georgia relies on the most, or whose uh, who's share of the passing game increases the most with Brock out? I feel like McConkie. He's healthy at the right time. And um, I hate to say it, but when we were talking preseason, I mentioned that I don't think any Georgia receiver would have 1,000 yards receiving just because of the depth there. And Brock probably would have, but now, I mean, it's definitely nobody will. But I think the guy who is in position to pick up the lion's share of that is Ladd. Um, I'd love for, you know, to, to me, Dominic Lovett's been great. He's been exactly what we wanted. Same with Rod Rod Thomas. Um, Jack Saints, Rosemary Jack Saints continue to improve. I haven't seen that much of Arian Smith. I'd love to see more than just, you know, pull him out of a closet whenever we need a Hail Mary against Ohio State. But, um, you know, to me, it's got to be Ladd McConkey. So, I did just do some math. Uh -oh. If Brock comes back for a potential SEC championship game, he could have three games at the end of the season. 
And he would only need 144.3 yards per game in those three games to get to 1,000. The way you say only. Yeah. <laughs> well, only he was Brock. averaging 140 half for most of the, like the last three games. Your only Brock could make that stat sound doable, but it's very much possible. He, But he was the only guy on the team to me that ever had a chance to do that. Yeah. yeah I, You know, we had talked about it, and I think if Ladd was healthy all year, he had the potential yeah. just because – he can take a five-yard run and split the defense and go all the way, and he would right. he would have had the amount of receptions if he would have been healthy all year. Um, but obviously, it didn't work out that way. Um, right, you're right. Oh, and considering how banged up the uh, running back room has been, obviously, it, you know, you know, we had the one back healthy last week, or you know, the previous game. He you know had career game, but a lot more opportunities out there as opposed to you know previous years they really are you're right so one thing that i also think is um interesting about this matchup is florida has a outside of that kentucky game have a very good run defense i think they held tennessee to uh 50 yards or less and with georgia now being on their third string right tackle how how massive is that injury you know, that's a good question. I I actually think that it's not as big. Georgia really, if anything, this is not a positive. Their O-line has not impressed me to the level that it should have this season. They've had to rely on the pass more to open up the run. And so, to me, you look at a team like Kentucky, they have to run the ball or they're going to lose or they may even get blown out. Georgia can win without running the football at all. I mean, this even goes back to last year. Like, Oregon somehow outrushed Georgia in that game. Um you know, Carson Beck leads the SEC in attempts, and I believe he's second in passing yards per game behind only Jaden Daniels. So I, I see Georgia throwing the ball a lot. They'll run it, and they'll run it well, but they're not a team that needs to run the ball for 200 yards to win the game. How? What's your level of concern when it comes to Ricky Pearsall probably coming out of the slot on uh, Tyke Smith? You know, not that concerned. I think Tyke is actually the best player on the whole defense. I've been excited for him to put on a Bulldog uniform since 2021. I know he tore his ACL, unfortunately, that year. It took well into last year for him to get his feet under him, but I think he's second in the nation in interceptions so far, tied for the SEC lead. He's just been a revelation in the secondary. So I say advantage Georgia on that. Doesn't mean we win every snap, but I like him a lot. Mm Mm-hmm. And does Graham Mertz concern you whatsoever? No. I mean, to me, he's maybe even a worse version of um, Devin Leary with Kentucky. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, because he, he, he certainly didn't have a conference player of the year under his yeah. belt. But, um, no, I'm not saying he's bad. I think he's he's a, a very average quarterback. And um, I just don't like the odds of an average quarterback trying to slice and dice UGA's defense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I think a lot of the uh, completion percentage talk, as Connor of SDS has talked about ad nauseum, is uh, his depth of targets like five yards. Yeah. So I know. he and, He's best when he throws the ball backwards behind the line of scrimmage. And honestly, he's at his very, very best when the game is completely out of hand and no one has any expectations on him ever scoring another point. 
that's when he's really made his best impact. And so um, I'm not as worried. I think Florida has a lot of athletes like they always do. To me, their defense is more talented. They've got a couple above average guys that are running back, but I just don't see their quarterback as being one of the scariest guys this year. To, to me, he's he's like a less athletic, less accomplished version of Richardson. Same number, a lot of a lot of comparisons there. I will say with uh, Florida's defense, they did give, did, uh, did give up 39 to South Carolina last week. So eh. they have the potential yes. of being really good, but yeah. Yes, but what Spencer Rattler has done this year is not getting near enough praise with that That's terrible fair. offensive line. Spencer, if if Spencer Rattler had a mediocre offensive line, he would probably be in the Heisman conversation because of what he's doing without a good offensive line. I think you're right. Uh, I was talking to a South Carolina buddy of mine, and he said his hope for this week now, meaning yesterday, was that hopefully they could set a few traffic cones out there and slow the D-line up a little bit. Um, but that that's about what they've been dealing with. I mean, this guy has been elite. He had about a perfect first half in Athens against UGA. Um, obviously, his second half didn't go his way, but just a Heisman caliber season behind a team that that just totally gives up on him. He definitely deserves better. I, I, I want to say he has one, at least one more year of eligibility, right? I think so. Because of COVID, I think that's right. So he could come back. I also don't know what else he has left to prove. Mm -hmm. um, the NFL tends to find guys no matter where they're playing. I mean, you know, you hear of quarterbacks who go on to do well in the NFL that played for, you know, D2 schools or something. And so I, part of me wonders if he's staring at a top half of the first round pick, what do you have left to prove? Do you need to get banged up against an SEC slate and, you know, finish six and six again for everybody to love you? I'm not sure. And that, I'm just throwing it out there. What if Caleb? Okay, Caleb Williams going to go to the NFL and probably flame out there. Spencer Rattler makes a uh, you know kisses and makes up with Lincoln Riley, goes out to LA, and it's just the same thing over again. But put up the style. With that, the offensive line at USC isn't that not better. much better than South Carolina's. No, that's true. That the only thing better than that would have been if JT Daniels would have considered coming back to Georgia over the offseason, but alas, <laughs> it was not meant to be. Well, yeah. I mean, to be fair, for Spencer, he could go to the better, more well known USC and at least get some more eyeballs that's, and some more NIL money, all that. That's very true. I think if Spencer or if yeah, I think if Spencer Rattler comes back, he's just gonna go to the team that needs a quarterback with the best offensive line. Like Spencer Rattler, Notre Dame. Kentucky. Sam Hartman's leaving this year. Notre Dame would be an option. Yeah. Okay. Um, Y'all want to talk about the playoff poll. It's coming out, what, next Tuesday, I think it is? I believe so. I don't remember if it's Monday or Tuesday. I think it's usually Tuesday. Okay. Um, so, first question if the poll came out today, what would be your top six, Candler? So uh, one thing I know about the playoff poll is that it's not about how you want it. It's just a resume. It's who have you beaten so far. Georgia's schedule is so backloaded to me. They've looked ugly doing it. Um, I, I have so many questions about their offense, and, and I don't necessarily think they'll go undefeated. But I think you've got to put Ohio State number one. Their wins over um, 
you know, Notre Dame and Penn State will resonate a lot because those teams have been dominant outside of when they played Ohio State. Um, I would think number two at this point, probably Washington. Um, and then I think three, Georgia. And I, I hate saying that, but so far, Georgia's, you know, faced one team that was ranked at the time of the game who's obviously, um, well, at, at least as of what I saw earlier today, not ranked anymore. Maybe they'll get back into the polls. Um, but so I just think that they're kind of deserving that spot. But I also think that this is going to settle itself on the field. Um, I see the Pac-12 beating up on each other. I'm less convinced than ever that Oklahoma is going to run the table after how they performed last week. Um, and I'm not even that sold that FSU is going to run the table. So we'll see. But for now, if you had to do it just a snapshot in time, pretend the season's over today, that's how I would rank it. Who would close out the uh, – who would be four, five, and six in there for you? Oh, yeah, good, good question. I'd say – I would say barely FSU, four, Oklahoma, five, and then um, six would be um, – I'd say actually six, Michigan. I know some people may, like, take offense to that, but who's Michigan beating? They haven't played anybody. They look good, but mm. anyone would look good against their schedule. Um, and so I, I don't really have questions about Michigan, but it's just that – they played nobody. I, like, I, I don't know what kind of team they have. They don't even know what kind of team they have yet. And it will settle itself out with them because I think they have a bye week. You're right. They have a bye week this week, and then they finish the season two out of the last three. They go to Happy Valley, and then they finish at home in uh, the game against Ohio State. So, And just that's quite a resume. So mm -hmm. they, it'll fix itself. Oh, and they got so Maryland far. in there, too. So, I mean, it, yeah, it's, so we're they're not an you know, incomplete season so far. Yeah. For me, I would probably I'd probably move Michigan to four and the rest of your top six I would keep the same. My thing is Michigan has beaten yeah. everybody they've played by at least three possessions. Still and have not allowed they still have not allowed a uh, opposing offense to run a play um within the ten. Like they haven't allowed like a first and goal situation. To me, all the, the style points make up for the lack of resume because it's incredible what they've done curb stomping people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they really are. There, there's nothing on the field that you can critique other than the quality of competition so far. Um, that's my prediction. I'm not saying that's how I would rank them, but I do know that the playoff committee, it, it can be fickle by year, um, but they tend to look at, you know, what are teams ranked today that you beat? And so that that's why I predicted that. I think for me, I, I, just the way that I think that it will end up going, I, I have it pulled up here. So I thought that and it, it really depends on who's on the actual committee itself. I think that will make a difference. And I know they post that, and I haven't, I don't have it pulled up at the moment. But I think if they're going to do the uh, the poll right, right now, I think they'd have Michigan at number one. They'd have Georgia at two, Ohio State three, FSU four, and probably Oklahoma five. And then uh, – Hmm. I think, well, who else would be there? Um, the FSU six? No, um, no, I had, I had, wait, I had Michigan one, Georgia two, Ohio State three, Florida State four, uh, Oklahoma five, and then probably Washington, Washington down at six. six. Washington okay. just wow. I know, I'm not, I'm not saying I necessarily agree with that, but I think that. Yeah, prediction, yeah, I get you. Yeah, just, yeah, just what I think the committee will do, because I think. You know, obviously they looked good and they were able to escape with a win against against Oregon. But then 
you know, they come back with this game against uh, Arizona State and really just and really struggle. Michael Penix didn't yeah. look, you know, great, great. Now, with that said, I would think Washington should be a top four team. I would, I would sub Florida State and Washington in that scenario, but. I mean, Georgia, Michigan, Ohio State, for sure, in the top three. And then you can make a good argument about who would be in that fourth uh, fourth spot. Yeah, it's never really been about, to me, who's looked the best. I mean, that's how mm-hmm. in the first playoff poll of all time you had Mississippi State number one, because just because of how front-loaded their schedule was. And to me, that's a big question on the first playoff poll is, do you have a front-loaded schedule? And if so, it helps you for then, it hurts you for later. And so – um, it will all sort itself out, like you guys mentioned. But in the meantime, it'll be interesting to see how they view the different teams. So, in your opinion, do you think the committee actually watches games? I know it's a bunch of athletic directors and that sort of stuff. Or do you think they just real look at box store box scores and rankings? I think it's both. I mean, there's no way they watch every game. I bet you the average committee member watches two games per Saturday. And if it's not one of those two games, they probably didn't see it. I bet they watched a few highlights, probably checked the box scores a bit. Um, but I think it's a blend of both. And how much do you think that their personal bias of the school or uh, conference they work in has? I think it does have some. I don't think it's a lot because uh, they recuse themselves whenever it's their team. But you know, I think everyone has their own personal biases, and I think it weighs into that. You know, until they uh, create 12 AI bots that vote on the playoff poll, I think there'll always be some human bias. We need the BCS to pick out the uh, the 12 teams next oh, year. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for the 2023 college football playoff selection, um, I don't have the, the names up here, but Mich- for what it's worth, uh, Ward Manuel, Michigan's AD, is on the uh, committee. Um, and again, like you said, I mean, he'll, he'll back out of that when it comes to any talk about Michigan, but didn't Ohio some... State's AD just leave the playoff committee after they were left out in 2021. I think so. I know Herb street, um, walked off the stage one year yeah. and they were left out of it. So, and I like, I like Kirk, but obviously a lot of personal bias there. He did have to leave Columbus when they were living there because he got so much crap for, from Buckeye fans that, that thought that he was, was anti Ohio state. He was a freaking captain of that team. So that's just kind of peach bowl commentary. You absolutely know that he is not biased against Ohio state. Right. (laughs) So when it comes down to the final selection for the top six, how much do you think the committee looks at the potential money factor with those rankings? I think not at all. I tend to believe that. Um, I don't think money is a factor. I mean, it's, it's possible, but I believe the best in people. Everyone obviously has their own personal bias, biases, but I don't think money has any factor in the final four. Do you think avoiding rematches in the first round is, uh, is a part of the final four? I 100% believe that does bias them. And so it's actually stated in the playoff committee's bylaws that they are allowed to have no regard for for playoff rematches and setting those up or avoiding them. And to me, they've 100% been biased towards that. Look no further than last year. I mean, you cannot look at TCU's schedule and say that they had a better resume than Ohio State 
after Ohio State's win over Penn State, who went 10-2, and two, was dominant. Um, TCU beat everyone by seven, and good for them. They were, they were a great underdog story, great to root for. Their resume was not better than Ohio State's. It wasn't even close. And somehow they were given the three seed just so that um, Ohio State Michigan wouldn't play in back-to-back games, although that would have been just incredible television. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I think avoiding rematches is a huge concern of the playoff committee, even though it's expressly stated when you join that that is not allowed to be a factor. Yeah, that, I know their their goal was probably more so. I mean, they could have had the guaranteed Michigan-Ohio State rematch in uh, in the desert instead of the TCU one. Um one thing, I, this kind of sort of a tangent, I, I had floated it out there. We we haven't really talked about the Michigan sign stealing thing at all. Um, but one of I, I kind of heard someone kind of bring it up, and then I kind of went down a rabbit hole with it. But you know, they're they're accused of you know sending you know lower level personnel to games and scouting you know future opponents and potential college football playoff opponents my theory is that they didn't think tcu would made it uh, was going to make the playoff last year they weren't adequately prepared for it now granted two pick sixes and just you know a bunch of turnovers didn't help them in that in that matter but i'm just just throwing that out there yeah uh, that could very well be part of it no it's interesting to see hear about that with um, Michigan, and I, I'm curious to see what will actually happen, what will come out of that. That would be their second violation this season. Um, mm. Does Harbaugh catch any heat for it? Does he not? I'm sure it's possible to say, hey, you know, it was it was this rogue intern. I mean, he was just completely acting of his own volition, but, you know, that's that's not really how things tend to go in those circumstances. And, you know, as someone that played, like how how big of a deal is it if, if somebody has – calls or signals from a previous game because i i mean i'm under the assumption that that you know offenses and you know and defenses for that matter change whatever you know calls or hand signals that they have like each week right yeah i mean we would change our signals all the time to me the biggest thing you can do is watch film on opponents and Mm -hmm. you're going to get that because teams just exchange film so I, i don't know if sending people there in person would really make that big of a difference at all i know it's it's obviously not allowed but to me, I can't even really think of many advantages you would gain from that. Everyone's so secretive these days. You change your signs so often. Um, mm-hmm. You even change your playbook. Every single week, there are different plays that are in and out based on the opponent. And so I really don't know if you'd gain that much of an advantage at all from doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Jim Harbaugh does a lot of things that don't necessarily give you an advantage. Drinking milk with steak. Um, wasn't he the guy <laughs> that said, don't eat chicken? It's a... The nervous, it's a nervous bird. Nervous you don't want to... bird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so making sense is not Harbaugh's forte. Um, just, just throwing that out there. No, I mean it's it's hard to argue with the results he's had lately, but that, that's true. Um, he's done a few things that have been questionable for sure. Mm-hmm. So, and this is something that we've kind of touched on before, and I've seen some people on social media talking about it, but. If every conference championship is played with a one-loss team beating an undefeated team. Mm. So, for the sake of argument, Alabama beats Georgia. Um, UNC beats Florida State. I guess it doesn't really work in the Big Ten. Um, Iowa's not beating any of those teams in the Big Ten. No. no. Um, well, they have two losses now. So, Oh, do they? Oh, I totally missed that. Yeah, they yeah. won. They lost twelve ten to Minnesota. That's right. The under hit. <laughs> uh, of course. 
Texas beats <laughs> Oklahoma, and then Oregon beats Washington in a rematch. Which which teams do you think get in at that point? Yeah, what a question. I mean, like you said, with four of those conferences doing that to each other, um, to me, you'd have to put Texas in. If they would have avenged their loss to Oklahoma and they've got the road win in Tuscaloosa, so they obviously have the head-to-head on Bamba, there's no way to exclude them. Um the Big Ten champ, I'm assuming, is undefeated in this situation, so they're in. Yeah. Um, a one-loss Bama that's an SEC champ would be in versus a one-loss Georgia that did not win SEC. And then I would say, whew, I'd actually say um, one-loss Oregon goes in. And, and basically the uh, one-loss conference champ, UNC or Louisville, whichever, pick them out of the ACC, they get left out. Just a weaker strength of schedule versus the Pac-12 is the best it's ever been. They're going to be able to put together a resume. Yeah, that that's kind of what I was thinking on that, but I wanted to uh, to float it out there and and see what you guys were thinking on it. So in here, this isn't something we necessarily talked about doing, but I was thinking about it while grocery shopping earlier because I I don't pay attention to the grocery store. My wife does that. Um, doing a blind Heisman review. And so I've got players A, B, C, D, and E here and their stats. So player A, and I think you guys all or both have the outline if you want to look at it. Um, player A team is undefeated. Not, no team has one loss. 2089 yards, 19 touchdowns, 17 or 78.4% completion, 105 rushing yards and two rushing touchdowns. Player B, 2000 on an undefeated team, 2576 passing yards, 20 touchdowns, 70.8% completion, no no real rushing stats for that guy. Uh player C is on a one-loss team. 2,573 passing yards, 25 touchdowns, 73.1% completion, 521 rushing yards with five touchdowns. Player D is on a three-loss team, but has 2,420 passing yards, 21 touchdowns, 72.3% completion, no real rushing stats. And the last player is also on a one-loss team. 2,253 passing yards, 15 touchdowns, 69.7% completion, 134 rushing yards with five touchdowns. Yeah, so, I mean, just looking at these, I'm different than your average voter. Um, So I would actually throw out the win-loss record. To me, the best player could be on a team that doesn't have that good of a record. They may have a horrendous defense. That's not his fault. Um, and so looking at it, I would say player C. I mean, you look at most overall, you know, total yards, uh, most overall total touchdowns, um, second highest completion percentage. And, you know, looks like quite the resume to me. Yeah, I'm the same with that. Absolutely. Player C. I think I have a good idea about who that is. Um, that would be my Heisman. Heisman winner for sure, followed by uh, player player E, because they do have you know, do have a little bit of a rushing 
uh, category there, but yeah, C for sure. So, Candler, who would be your number two? Um, I would say whew, it's kind of tough for me between E and A. I guess I'm I'm probably barely going with player A. Um, a bit lower on the total yards overall, but a ton of touchdowns, the best completion percentage. So it looks like a good resume to me. So is that player, Graham Mertz? <laughs> player A no, Graham Mertz is not in here. He doesn't okay. have the okay. He doesn't have the yards. Okay. Um, player A, Bo Nix. Ooh. Yeah, not surprised. Yeah. He, he's having a Heisman candidate caliber season. Mm -hmm. Player B, Michael Penix Jr. Player C, Jaden Daniels. Yeah, there we go. Okay. D is Shadur Sanders. Hmm. And E, does anybody have a guess on who E is? Because this, I feel like, is surprising a lot of people. Um, I'm trying to even think who that could be. Um, probably not Dylan Gabriel. Is it, I don't know, Quinn Ewers? Is it Sam Hartman? It's Brady Cook. No kidding. Good for him. Wow. Yeah. Well, we'll get to see more of him in his next game in Athens. Yeah. That, Brady Cook. That shocked me um, when I looked it up. Wow. So, Good for him. Yeah, and, you know, I, last season into this offseason, pretty much everyone was asking why he was still the starting quarterback, and uh, turns out it was just the offensive play caller. Yeah. Yeah, he's having quite the year. I knew he was doing well. I didn't know he was doing that well. Um, no, very surprised. You know, it was positive for him. Love it for UGA's strength of schedule, so should be fun. For sure. Um, Candler, do you want to talk about some of the games with – from the weekend with us, or do you want to get out of here? Up to you. Yeah. No, absolutely. I'd love to talk about some of the games from this weekend. I mean, you look at, like, you put on the, um, you know, the summary, Penn State, Ohio State. I mean, very defensive game. I thought it would be, but I had no clue just the ineptitude of Penn State's offense. I mean, you look, they were top 10 in the country in total offense before that game. That's the, like, that performance is what made me say what I said about Michigan earlier. And that, like before Penn State played Ohio State, they looked phenomenal. They they murdered everybody, but they had played no one. And so that's the same thing about Michigan. They've looked phenomenal and they've played no one. And so when Penn State has a top 10 offense in the country and it takes until the waning moments for them to even wake up and get a touchdown against the Buckeyes, I mean, that was just stunning to say the least. But um, a lot of concerns for Ohio State's offense. I mean, they're, they're a far cry from what they were last year. I, uh, even if they are to beat Michigan, I, I still don't feel like there's a national title um, in the bag with the way that they're just struggle to move the ball. And it really just all comes to the most important position in the game, quarterback. Um, and uh, I like the, uh, the reference. I heard that on TV a lot about Marvin Harrison, Maserati Marv. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It was pretty funny. I, I like the reference a lot. It was good. I, I actually, that was my second favorite reference of his. The uh, announcer, Joel Klatt, uh joked about how he was everywhere and compared him to Roy Kent during the live broadcast. So you got to love a good Ted Lasseter reference. There you, <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't necessarily like the comparison to a Maserati just because Maseratis don't have weak necks. But I was going to say, do they have airbags? Because that would be a big part so you don't have whiplash. They're durable cars, for, a little okay. more durable than Marvin Harrison is. But 
<laughs> if so, I, I was listening to something and they, they, you know, they brought up the Maserati Marv reference, and someone had said that Kyle McCord would be a Honda McCord. <laughs> I, I enjoyed yeah. that quite a bit. That's why I, th- I had to throw that in there. Start stuck in first gear, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> oh. oh, I, you know, I don't even know a terrible car that starts with A for Aller because Altima. Uh, all 2004 Altima Aller. That's with the frost shaking off. It's (laughs) God. He the thing is, the offensive play calling wasn't great. Like I'm not. I'm not going to try and say it was, but he had guys open all day, and was just like, oh, I'm gonna throw it to the guy with three defenders right next to him, Mm. and that was his game plan. Yeah, I, I don't even know if maybe the A stands for arranged alternate transportation or something uh, for Drew Aller, but yeah, he's been wildly mediocre. Actually, looked terrible on the road almost every game of his career, and uh, did not disappoint this time either. Mm-hmm. I will say Ohio State, as bad as their offense looked, that defense is legit. Like it's a championship yes. level defense, but the offense. Funny that a Ryan Day led team, the offense would be the biggest question for them. Yeah, they do have a championship level defense. Right? I sorry for working my dog as a friend over, no, but um, they I mean they they have a top ten defense in the country, and it's going to keep them in every game. Um, but gosh, if they're down late, uh, you know, in a championship game, I, I have no faith in their offense to deliver. All right, they're throwing it back to like the Craig Krenzel uh, days of Ohio State, where it's like he's not even he's not even a game manager at this point. No, he's he's just like a. You're trying to just hope that he doesn't blow it, and you know that he probably will, and your defense will have to bail you out. But yeah, mm-hmm. he's he's what they've got. Yep. So I will say it was it was pretty terrible seeing uh, Devin Brown go down in this game. Ohio State's backup quarterback that seems to be more mobile, so they put him in in certain situations. I don't know what happened, but he was carted off the field right before the half, and uh, as a backup, true freshman especially a quarterback that wears number 33. That's not the kind of thing you want to see. No, I hate to see anyone get hurt. I agree. Um, that, no, that was sad to see him get hurt. He played well. Um, it was kind of interesting. One of his best plays, if you will, was actually, I thought falling over at the opportune moment when uh, Penn state kind of hit him like a little late after the whistle, but probably was not getting a flag thrown his way. And he, he did a, a somersault at the right moment, right in front of the <laughs> official to make sure he got that flag. Um, but to me, I said it at that exact second and I, I just knew it. And it was absolutely true. Was that base, that fumble that McCord had that went for a Penn state touchdown. It, and then obviously gets called back for a holding that had nothing to do with the play and what the ball wasn't going to get thrown that way. Anyways, that was the game. If mm-hmm. Penn State doesn't commit that penalty, they win the game, and we're talking about them very differently. Although we're probably saying the same negative things about their offense that we're saying about Ohio State. But yeah, I hate to see Ohio State's quarterback get injured. To me, that means that they're stuck with McCord now more than ever. I know they were already going to ride it out with him. It's just um, it's tough to bench a quarterback if you're undefeated. Yeah, it's just hard to argue with that because at the end of the day, we live in a society that biases everything towards winning. And when you win, it covers up so many flaws. And when you lose, even if you did nine out of 10 things right, everyone focuses on the one out of 10 things that didn't go that well. So that's kind of where the Buckeyes are right now. Yeah. 
And I think I think what we've learned about Penn State is that they're just always going to Penn State under James Franklin. Like I feel like Penn Stating is the new Clemsoning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. I, I mean, the most exciting thing Penn State has done in the last few years was bring Keegan Michael Key in to give the team a pep talk uh, at an opportune <laughs> moment. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, they they're just. They're an also-ran that's always in the conversation, and they just cannot get over the hump. Is Penn State – was Penn State's peak under James Franklin 2016? Is that going to be the peak of his entire career? I think it definitely will. And if not, the peak of his career was 2013 Vanderbilt. I mean, that was an incredible team, found a way to beat Georgia, Florida, and Tennessee in the same season. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, his best seasons are, are definitely in the rearview mirror, in my opinion. It's – he reminds me a lot of Jimbo Fisher, maybe with a equally patient fan base behind him, getting paid a ton of money, got a long contract, and and certainly never delivering any delivering any more championships. Mm-hmm. It's tough. I honestly kind of feel for Penn State fans with that because it's it's almost it's a very similar argument to what Georgia had under Mark Rick. Like, at what point is winning ten games a season not enough? I don't know. I mean, they, they probably owe the universe some, some karma. So they maybe do another, you know, good 10 to 20 seasons of almost, but not quite. I'm not sure. So, um, but they've been knocking on the door for quite a while. Yeah. So Tennessee, Alabama, um, I, this was just a return to norm for what this rivalry has been over the last five years. Tennessee finds a way to get a lead, even though they're not near as talented and then just stops playing football. That That's kind of what this game felt like to me. Yeah. It was just, I mean, wild and frustrating. I was texting a good buddy of mine who's a Tennessee fan throughout that game, and he was so thrilled at the beginning, but still with no trust in the team. I mean, you, you cannot trust this Tennessee team to play well against a good opponent. Um, and Bama this year has just been maddening. I feel like Bama is three points better than the worst team in America, but they maybe could beat anyone on any given day. So um, surprising, some of their fourth and one calls to go for it were just maddening. I mean, I, I have no clue what was going through the coach's head other than just making mistakes, obviously, but um, they really, really shot themselves in the foot, had the chance to get a big road win and push the program forward and, start to, you know, assert themselves in a rivalry that's really gone against them and um, just absolutely blew a glorious opportunity. We had talked about it a little bit before uh, on the uh, preview pod that we thought if if Hennon Hooker and, uh, and uh, Hyatt were there, I think Tennessee wins by two touchdowns. It's just that oh, big for sure. drop-off. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I agree. They've had such a drop-off. To me, Bama's nowhere near as good as they were last year. They may finish with the same mm-hmm. record as last year, I think, like last year, they'll miss the playoffs again. Um, but, yeah, both those teams, I mean, they, they are not what they were a year ago. That was definitely an, an ugly game. Um, Bama's offense reminds me kind of a lot of like a, a like a middle school team where you're, you're either getting five, like a negative five-yard run or a 50-yard bomb every play, and you just pray that it's a 50-yard bomb, and that's all you've got. So um, interesting matchup, you know. Hypo, I think, has bought himself quite a while with Tennessee, and I think their fan base is sick of the merry-go-round of getting a new coach every three or four years. But, you know, if he continues to under-deliver year after year, I'm, I'm not sure how happy they'll be with that. It may be like a Gus Malzahn-Auburn situation. He has a couple of elite years, has a lot of eight, nine-win seasons that are just okay, and 
It'll be interesting to see what the fan base thinks of it. But um, that could have set up just an epic Tennessee-Georgia rematch in, in Neyland. It'll still have, you know, some shine to it. However, if Tennessee doesn't beat Kentucky this week, which they tend to do well in that rivalry, but who knows, is it the Kentucky team that showed up against Florida or is it the Kentucky team that showed up against Georgia? Um, but if Tennessee does not find a way to win that game, all of a sudden they're staring down the barrel of an eight and four, maybe seven and five season. And that, that looks a lot worse than what they were thinking of a week ago today. Mm-hmm. And what's, what's really interesting to me in this game is that statistically Joe Milton and Squirrel White were the best two offensive players on the field. Like the two best offensive players on the field played for Tennessee. Jalen Milrow was okay. And Jace McClellan probably had his best game of the season with 115 yards. But, like, if you would ask me on Friday if Joe Milton and Squirrel White were going to be the best two players on the field, I would have said you're a liar. There's no way I believe that. No, I, I still have no clue where the Tennessee wide receiver room gets these names from. I was talking uh, with my girlfriend about over this weekend, but especially last year, it's like you got a guy named Hyatt, a guy named Brew, like a beer, another guy named Squirrel. Where, <laughs> where do these names come from? Um, but they do have you know quite a lot of talented receivers. You're right. Squirrel White was the best player on the field for either team. Middleton played well, far outplayed Milrow. But uh, honestly, any day where you can say that Jalen Milrow did not make multiple catastrophic mistakes. That's a good day for him. He took a couple hits in the pocket that I was surprised he got up from. I mean, he's done that in the last few games too. Like this blind side just get destroyed. So assuming that Georgia ends up playing them in uh, the SEC championship, we could see, uh, continue to see some big hits like that. I mean, yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. Dude's built like a tank. He just yeah. is a tank with no cannon. <laughs> yeah, he's no tough. I, I'm not arguing his toughness. Um, he probably has, you know, roughly the situational IQ that a tank does as well. Um, but very, very <laughs> tough guy. Um, and just, you know, catastrophic mistake after catastrophic mistake. I mean, he, he's probably the most anti-Saban quarterback that I could ever imagine. Because even back to the Greg McElroy days, whether you're talented or not, mm-hmm. the quarterback position, it was just beat into their brain. Do not beat yourself up. Do not destroy what this team has going on. Do not be the reason we lose. And um, he just again and again makes those mistakes. And at this point, you are who you are. And so that's, that's who they've got, and they're going to do their best they can with it. I tend to think that Jaden Daniels is going to truly have a Heisman moment against them and lead them to a win on the road, um, in which probably neither team plays any defense at all. Um, but it, it's been an interesting roller coaster ride. I mean, this Bama team is unlike any other maybe in the last 40 years that Bama's had, um, just week to week. I mean, an Arkansas team that's probably fairly certain to go 0-8 in conference play this year had them totally beat on the ropes a week ago. And just obviously the running back tripped on the 50-yard line, like uh, kind of like Kenny McIntosh did on the 20-yard line against Ohio yeah. State last year. And so um, it's it's been a wild ride, and it'll continue to be a wild ride. I mean, even yesterday, somehow, some way. Alabama had two turnovers, both by Jalen Milrow. And and they somehow have a two-possession win. Like I, the math doesn't math with this Alabama team. No, it doesn't. And I know um, Hypo took an uncomfortable pause to uh, 
reflect on the officiating for that. But to me, a lot of it was the play calling. I mean, you go for it a couple times on fourth and one in your own territory for Tennessee. You don't and score anything in the second a half. Option play out of the pistol on a fourth and inches. Like what? That makes yeah. as much sense as having uh, Isaiah McKenzie run a play on fourth down when you have Nick Chubb and Sonny Michelle in the backfield. I know that. Yeah, exactly. We tried that against Bandy and it didn't work too well. But um, no, and Tennessee's secondary is to blame too. I know they have a top ten defense in the country, or they did until you know they faced somebody good, but leaving Isaiah Bond wide open. I mean, you or I could have completed that pass. There was no one within 20 yards of him. And so um, they have no one to blame but themselves. But they had a great opportunity. They had a good lead on the road. Um, but this year's Tennessee team is not last year's Tennessee team. One other uh, one other question before we move on to uh, Utah and USC. So with uh, with Georgia having five games remaining, you know, before the season, we everybody talked about Georgia going to uh, going to Knoxville to play Tennessee would be like the game that would decide the SEC East. At this point, with uh, Florida, Missouri, uh, Ole Miss, Tennessee, and, and uh, Georgia Tech, where does where does Tennessee fall at in that uh, that list of teams that worry you the most going into the meet of the schedule? You know, I would have to say they're number two um, in that list. I mean. Missouri's got to be number one because, mm -hmm. you know, that game actually would the winner of it is in first place. And so Georgia has to win that game. Tennessee already has two losses. They still have some tough opponents left to play. And so to me, it's got to be Missouri because like you guys showed, Brady Cook's having a great season and stats are wonderful. They're very, very close to being undefeated right now coming into Athens. Um, but I think Georgia will show up. I think this would be a lot like the Kentucky game. Um, and especially because they won't be taking them lightly. Last year, Missouri had our number. They mm -hmm. probably should have found a way to win that game, but champions dig deep when it's needed the most. And so I think Georgia will do that again against Missouri, but that has to be circled right now as the biggest game of the season. And that sure. Malachi Starks come from behind uh, tackle to to prevent them from from getting that touchdown was the defining play in that game. It could have led the championship yeah. DVD. Should have. Yeah. You're exactly right. So, I think one of the most hilarious games of the weekend. Um, Utah going to the Coliseum and beating USC for a third time in two years. And I know I said this the other day, but if Caleb Williams gets that part ownership in whatever team drafts him, you, Utah deserves 33% of his ownership because they own him. Like There is no way, shape, or form that this Utah team should have put up, what, 34 points? Ever. Period. No, I think you're right. Uh, it, it's been such a rough year. I, I'm stunned that it took USC this long to start losing. I mean, they, they could have easily had losses before then. Um, I, you know, Caleb Williams, obviously not a role model. He's more focused on painting uh, curse words on his fingernails than he is on uh, his team trying to win a championship. But I, you know, he makes a good villain for college football. I think everything's better when you have heroes and villains. And there's some guys you can root for. He's an easy guy to root against. So I think a lot of people are happy that they took another loss. Um, so it was interesting. I mean, Southern Cal, they have the same thing that plagues them every game. They, they don't even play defense. They really don't play physical on the line of scrimmage on either side of the ball. And so it's no wonder that a physical team like Utah with a backup quarterback 
went into the Coliseum and won. I, I wasn't surprised at all, quite frankly. Yeah, I don't know why we both we both picked USC to cover that seven point spread, and I immediately felt bad about it. It was because of the quarterback situation for Utah. I mean, I think we both talked about That's that. That's tough. Before. Yeah, back up yeah. because he's no Cam Rising, who's a very, no. very good quarterback. Mm-hmm. So, it, I, I'm having a hard time explaining how shocked I am by how well Bryson Barnes played because he increased his season stats 150%. Like, they, he had 500 passing yards and three touchdowns. And he's now at 750 passing yards and six touchdowns in one game. Like it, That's very it, impressive. It does not make sense. And I think all it does is emphasize just how bad USC's defense is. It was – I just – Well, blows yeah, me. I mean, I think we can all agree at least Bear Alexander transferred to a defensive powerhouse. Way more physical team, for sure. He was right there. Um, you know, shout out to Caleb Tillman, his, his, uh, Instagram page posted a meme that was, uh, Bear Alexander crying on the sideline. And it said, when you realize you could have been on an undefeated Georgia team, getting Jalen Carter hype. I know they're going to have to call him Teddy Bear Alexander if he keeps his season up. <laughs> I, I mean, him just, just. I didn't see the actual targeting play that he got ejected for, but it was it was 100% targeting. Was like, it okay? It was two steps after the quarterback had released the ball, and they went face mask to face mask, and he mm. like tilted his head into it. Okay. So, yeah, like that. That wasn't a tic tac. Oh, this shouldn't have been targeting. We need to change the rule. Like, no, that was. That so it's was not crazy. something that you would whine about like nine months later. Yeah. Okay. Well. I don't know if Lincoln Riley's friends with Ryan Day, he might. Yes, fair. <laughs> so earlier we didn't mention Caleb Williams' stats in the Heisman race, right? And that's because his Heisman campaign's over. So Caleb Williams has had one game of over 250 passing yards since the game against Colorado, where he had 403 including a triple overtime game against Arizona, who at the time had three losses. His one game with over 250 passing yards was Saturday night against Utah, and he had 256. Yeah. To me, I mean, you play on a team like that where everyone knows there's no defense. You need to really be pouring it on on offense to, you know, be in, in – candidacy for the Heisman. It's so hard to win that award two years in a row. I'm not sure what happens to everyone the year after they win it, but it doesn't work out to be as easy the next time around. And so um, I'm not surprised that he didn't win it. I, I thought all year that it would be, you know, Bo Nix and Michael Penix kind of staring it down at the end of the season. And uh, it looks like it very well could be shaping up to be that. Although it's, it's hard to not say that Jaden Daniels has been one of the best players in the country. I know they've got a couple losses and, LSU could honestly have four losses right now with the way their defense has been so atrocious. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, he's been he's been quite the warrior for LSU. So I, I think those three guys will kind of have a run to the finish. And like you said, Caleb Williams, I mean, at this point, he could probably put up all the numbers he wants and he's not going to get back into the race. Yeah, I mean, you have to have something really special to because, you know, Archie Archie Griffin's only two time Heisman winner. And, you know, Caleb Williams is not that it's not that guy. I mean, he, he would have to go above and beyond, and that's not going to happen. There, that's one of the few awards or uh, situations that I think that 
writers and voters will try to protect unless unless you're you know like an amazing historical year second year you're probably not going to get again regardless of who you are i mean tebow didn't no get you're it. you're right and i mean i think even back to at the time people said you know tim tebow had an incredible shot to win it twice in a row and he was mm-hmm. lucky to even get invited one of his last two years and everyone said that was kind of like a career achievement yeah. like not and he, he was so far in a distant fifth that it, it wasn't even really a, a vote so um no it's a tough w- award to win twice I, I kind of don't know if anyone will ever do it because anyone who wins it now you're probably pretty close to leaving for the nfl so it's very difficult to win that award twice so one thing about usc in particular that's kind of crazy to me is that they're they now have two losses both both embarrassing one because it was so big big at notre dame and then the other because utah beat you with their backup quarterback in an offense that had not scored more than 20 points since week two but they're healthier this year than they were last year when they went on that run to potentially make a playoff like they don't have anybody out this year and they're still same defense with a worse offense and that's kind of amazing to me it is um it's just one of those kind of befuddling things everyone thought they'd be really good this year um you know it makes people question whether lincoln riley is really a coach that can bring a championship he's obviously been great at getting oklahoma to the playoffs and then losing the first round every time and and maybe that's the ceiling and i and who knows if he'll even get that out of southern cal and if they can't do it this year, is it going to be that much easier when you have to play Ohio State and Penn State and Michigan every year? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this USC team is six and six, seven and five in the Big Ten. Mm-hmm. All right, so I think that's that wraps it up. Unless y'all have anything else you want to talk about, we do have to uh, own up to our bets this week. What were the uh, bets you guys made this week? So, um, with what I actually put money on, I did great. The problem is, okay. um, we pick, I picked Penn State to beat Ohio or to cover the four point spread at Ohio State. Um, that that's not the worst bet. bet. They could have. It should have probably. Um, well, again, we should have. We should. We both took that game. I took the under in that, so I, I was able to split it. But we should have known better to even have any faith in James Franklin whatsoever. So that's on us. Um, my next one was Alabama to cover the nine because Tennessee's just going to do what Tennessee does. That just kind of. Mm. I was in on that. That looked horrible for about 80, 95% of the game. And then, and then you pulled it off. So, well, <laughs> nicely done. Um, USC covering the seven. That was just because I had no confidence in Bryson Barnes. And I don't even think he had confidence in him until he saw that USC doesn't play defense. I think you're totally right. And you mentioned it too. Like uh, uh, Utah almost had 250 yards rushing with that as well. And they still, still blew it. So. Wow. Um, I picked Washington to cover the 28 at Arizona state because um, Arizona state had only won one game this year and they were um, 0 and 6 against the spread. Um including they were 20-point favorites over Southern Utah and won that game by four points in week one. So okay. Kenny Dillingham had one for me there. He uh, he pulled one out of the hat. Still lost, but the total wasn't even 28. 
Yeah, that that's pretty wild. Um, no, interesting surprise game for sure. Um, and then the bets that I actually put money on, James Madison covering the three and a half at Marshall. They won by like 30 points. I had you. I had Oklahoma uh, with the points against UCF, which ended up dropping to 17. Um, they obviously barely won that game, and I made that bet because John Rice Plumley was not supposed to play. Um, turns out he did, and didn't do poorly. Well, that's it. that changes it. Okay, we forgive you. Uh, yeah. And then Mizzou to cover the seven and a half. I thought that was one of the most egregious spreads of the weekend, so I put money on that one. And then Ole Miss minus six and a half at Auburn. They ended up winning by more than enough, but it looked way too close for comfort for most of that game. Mm-hmm. Well, I think they won by seven, so six and a half was right on point. Yeah. So I was four and four on the week, but with what I actually put money on, I was three and one. So I'll take that as nicely done. Good one. And like the major games that we had talked about, Penn State, Ohio State, Tennessee, Alabama, Utah, USC, we were, we had the same picks on all that. Um, my uh, my bandwagon team was Texas Tech, and I've just been fading them as of late because they just pissed me off beyond to no end. So uh, Texas Tech was a four and a half a four and a half point favorite at BYU. BYU covered that and won outright. Um, I did take Michigan to cover the twenty four point spread at Michigan State. They won forty nine nothing. Um, so that was a good, good one for me. Safe one. Huge. I mean, Michigan State quit. It was signs or stealing signs are not like we talked about before. Michigan's not going to get tested until they play um, in Happy Valley in a couple of weeks. Um, and I kind of hammered the Big Ten here. Uh, Wisconsin at Illinois. I took the under 42. Uh, it barely hit over. I can't remember what the score was. Um, the Minnesota at Iowa. I took the under 32. And I think what the total was like 22 or something like that. Yes. Total yeah. up score was twenty two. Incredible. I think that I, I want to say the uh, the um, the over under for that hit like twenty nine. I think on Saturday, and it still would have hit the under. <laughs> it's disgusting. And then wow. And then we both doubled down on Oklahoma uh, to cover nineteen, and both were on there. So I went five hundred as well this week. I was five and five uh, overall, and forty four, forty and one. So okay. Barely keeping our heads above water. Yeah. yeah. I went to an Iowa game a few weeks ago for the first time. It was cool seeing the hospital wave. And yeah. I saw an uncomfortable amount of punting is winning t-shirts there. I didn't realize their fans actually, <laughs> you know, that that is a mantra. I thought everyone made fun of them for that. But no, they, they like that there. I think they were mad about it at first. And then they just decided to lean into it. Like, this is what we are. Is we're there any yeah. way that their offensive coordinator keeps his job? Well, it's contractually obligated. He has an amount of points that he has to score, and he either gets a raise or gets fired, and there's no in-between. And he's obviously the son of the head coach. And um, I think they would have to double their scoring output from here on out in order to hit that. So, well, no, there's no chance. Well, points a game, and I think they're – with scoring 10 on Saturday, I'm pretty sure they're at, like, 14 points a game on average. So they would well, it's gonna hurt them. Like Forty. It's gonna it's gonna hurt them too if they end up making the Big Ten championship because they only. Have, I mean, it's oh, kind of, no. they're not gonna they're not gonna score twenty five against any team from the Big Ten East, and then whatever bowl game they're gonna be in, um, if if that counts toward that uh twenty five point average, they're not scoring twenty five in whatever game that is. So, no, um, literally no chance. Yeah, my I'm I'm just throwing out there that maybe uh 
Brian Ferentz takes over for Kirk at the end of the season and becomes head coach. So he gets fired from offensive coordinator, fails upward to become head coach. Keeps the wow. nepotism strong in Iowa. Okay. Maybe. I mean, that, that would be wild. James Coley would probably make their offense look new age. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> oh, all right. So that's going to do it for us on this episode of the podcast. We are talking to uh, Bobby Burchens about the Florida game on Wednesday night. So we will be live then if you'd like to join us there. If not, the episode will be out on Thursday on audio platforms. Follow all of our social medias, Instagram, nothing.finer.pod, Twitter, at FinerPod, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search us there. Um, rate and review the show five stars. Send us a screenshot. We will send you a sticker. And as always, guys, remember there is nothing finer in the land. And a drunken, Rochester Georgia fan. <laughs>